Hello, I'm Kelly Francis. I talk Atlanta United, MLS, and all things with a good bubble. Now, if you listen to me before and are wondering, did she switch platforms? The answer is yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> However, I know transitions are hard. So for the time being, this first segue episode will be hosted by both my new platform and home, Soccer Down Here, where I get to hang out and talk with Jason Longshore, John Nelson, and varying guests from all over MLS and with you, because that's the most important part. And for those who are listening on my old platform, Unrelegated, please make sure you note the change and get Soccer Down Here on all your podcatchers so you can stay up to date on all my new interviews, all my analysis that I kind of sometimes have, and my ramblings, which will most likely be with Champagne. Now, a few weeks ago, I asked you all on Twitter what you'd most want to talk about in regards to Atlanta United's 2019 season. There were a lot of responses, and they all ranged from Frank's first season, how injuries affected the team, how we will look going forward, and the ever-present Gressel debacle. In the beginning, when I started to look at the scope of questions and concerns, I knew that if I started to lay this out detail by detail, I would get lost and trying to deliver something that really was beyond a conversation. I would just be delivering facts. So rather quickly, I accepted the idea that I needed help. And I needed to be able to talk to somebody that had great insight, who could help solidify and divulge all the information we've been dying to hear and discuss. And I really couldn't think of no better person than Jason Longshore to help me with the task. So on a cold Tuesday, right after the CCL draw, I called up Jason with a cup of coffee in hand, prepared to go as in-depth as we needed to. Now, before I play the call, I will give you a heads up. I am still just beginning to learn about the technology of doing these things, and I'm also learning about audio quality and that sometimes we need to learn how to improve that going forward. This being said, the audio quality on the call is not the greatest. However, We do get into a great deal of topics and conversations in just 50 minutes. So I highly suggest turning it up, listening in, and enjoying. All right, here I am with Jason Longshore. He's the color commentator for Atlanta United Games on 9290 Game. And he is also one of the hosts of Soccer Down Here. Hello, Jason. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with me. Um, I just sort of wanted to pick your brain uh, as being one of the best brains, honestly, in MLS and soccer and American soccer history and Atlanta United. Um, So a lot of what people have been asking for me to do next is sort of a recap of 2019. Obviously, there is a lot that has gone on since the beginning of last year. You know, we signed a new coach. So we have the transition of a, of a, you know, a new coaching order or a, a new team in that regard from what we previously experienced with Todd Martino. And we were also coming off of a championship win. So I feel like a lot of what happened in 2019 was a lot with this sort of transition look. And so what I wanted to get into with you in the very beginning is how that transition sort of worked out. Now, Frank DeBoer obviously joined the team. We announced in December, and then he he joined early January, obviously, to get started uh, training for CCL. But there's been a lot of discussion about how Frank's early months went. Uh, A lot of people who, you know, really disliked the early months of Atlanta United, we know we were more defensive. We lacked act. We 
seemed a little bit slower on the ball, and a lot of that chalked that up to the new manager coming in and really changing a lot of things. But I think in the end, when you look at how Atlanta United fared over the entire season, it really wasn't that big of a difference. No, it wasn't. It was a lot closer than than people would have thought. And I think the early season reaction, so much of it was based off of what had happened at Frank's previous two stops. And I think that was in people's head. And there was a lot of concern and I think some unfounded criticism as well. It, I would not have been shocked if Tata Martino had turned in 2019 if you had seen a greater focus on defense early on. You know, it was something that Tata Martino talked about quite often. You, you saw a greater focus from 2017 going into 2018. And most importantly, and, and go back and listen to some of the interviews around the time of MLS Cup in 2018 and some of the interviews like along the way in that playoff run, Atlanta United flipped completely from being a wide-open attacking team to a very defensive defend-and-counter team, far more defensive than they were under Frank DeBoer by the end of the, the season in 2019. So you know, defense has been something that has been you know, a good. It's been a good defense from day one, but there's been room to improve. And there's moments where you have to be stronger defensively than Atlanta United showed either at times in 2018 that, you know, saw the change in the postseason to winning games in a different way, and at times in 2019 where you needed to be more defensive and you needed also to have the ability to go back and forth. I thought over the season, and, and that's, I think, how you have to judge it, Frank DeBoer got to know his, his group, got what was comfortable, and also I think the players got comfortable with what was being asked of them, and it became a more collaborative effort as the year went on. It's honestly pretty typical when you see coaching changes. Yeah, it really is. It's, it, there's always going to be a transition, a, a learning slash a getting comfortable stage with any team and a, and a new manager and a new coaching um, staff. So one of the things that you did point out was defensively, uh, how obviously come postseason of 2018, Tasha sort of, with the way that we played and we became a more defensive side. Now, one of the things that has been notated and sort of like as a shining spot on Tasha's time here was our defense away. Uh, obviously, in 2018, we had one of our best seasons, if not one of the best seasons in MLS, uh, when we went, you know, two, uh, sorry, excuse me, 10, two, and five, obviously 10 wins, um, two ties and five losses when we're coming away. But this year with, with Frank, we were at 6-1-10, and 10, which means that, you know, there's obviously room for improvement when, when the score or when the points on the metrics of loss is obviously higher than the win. How do you see that possibly changing for 2020? I think probably somewhere in between. I mean, 2018 was a little bit of an outlier in terms of away form. Like you said, it's it's one of the – greatest seasons a team has had away from home in MLS history. That doesn't happen, you know, every time out. 2019 was a good season away when you compare it around the league, but not as good as 18. Uh, part of it, if you look at the schedule and you look at who you played away, and that's always going to factor in an MLS. I think at times it's easy to talk about away form, but you have to look at the strength of schedule when you're talking about which games you play on the road. You played LAFC on the road, 
that was, you know, obviously a very difficult match, and it was still only 4-3, kind of a wild one, but they were the Sports Shield winners. You played the MLS Cup winner, Seattle, on the road, and, and that was another loss and a narrow one, a 2-1 loss. You had more travel in 2019 than you did in 2018. I think that had an effect. I thought it definitely had an effect on the game Red Bull Arena, where that was the week that you were at home, then flew to Vancouver and played midweek, and then came back home and moved up to Jersey for a game on Sunday, and the team looked flat at the end of it. I think those are three games that were difficult and difficult in different reasons that you didn't have the same difficulties in 2018. You had same type of result against Red Bulls, but a different you know route to it. You had LAFC at home in 2018. You had Seattle at home in 2018. Your road games in 2018 were not quite as difficult. Um, but just in terms of better form away, I think as the team gets more comfortable finding that balance between being able to sit and defend when you're under pressure against top teams because, you know, LASC is a prime example. They're going to put you under pressure. They're going to have a lot of the ball. You have to be comfortable in winning without the ball. And that's something that I think, you know, Atlanta United is still finding that balance. And they're going to have to do that again in, in 2020 because we don't know what the schedule is going to look like yet. And it is far more chance of of what you're going to get. We do know out of the five games away that you're going to play out of Western Conference opponents, and we don't know what the others are, we know one of them is national. So you draw a good one there because you're, you're facing an expansion team on the road. That's You'll take that. That's that's one you sign up for. Beyond that, you don't know. And, you know, it's it's hard to compare. So you have to just get into a situation where this team can find Elements of what worked in the playoffs in 2018, where you can be on your heels and you can defend, break teams down on the counter, versus the thing that I think is is very consistent between Frank and Tata, and something that you know Tony Annan talks about the academy side and controlling games. When Atlanta United can get to a point where they can control games in different ways, sometimes with defense, sometimes with possession, sometimes with a counterattack, they're going to be able to win in any situation that presents itself. Yeah, and that's a good point that you make, and I know you, especially on Soccer Down Here, sort of drilled in the fact of the schedule that we had and, and, you know, the way that the team had to deal with that. But we also played more games than any team in MLS did this year, obviously with the CCL run, the, the Campeones Cup game that played, and then obviously the the Open Cup win. So we were up to, I think, what was it, 48 games that we that we played throughout the entire course of the year, which is a lot of games, right? Including including travel when you do CCL when you have to try uh, fly internationally. So that's that's a lot of wear and tear on players. So I think you're absolutely right when it comes to this idea that that the the season that we faced in 2018, although as glorious as it was, and obviously ended in a very positive note as we're all reflecting at this entire moment um, in the year, but it, it was a very different season as far as challenges that the front office had to face. Yeah, when you add that many games, it's just difficult. And take that schedule and add in the injuries that Atlanta United had. I mean, you didn't have you're starting right back in Franco Escobar from the very beginning. You didn't get him back until you know a, a month or so into the season due to the injury on the first day of training. You didn't have your starting left back from CONCACAF Champions League again after that in Costa Rica and George Bello 
And I think he would have been the primary starter at left back if he had been healthy. That Absolutely. right there is massive. Yeah. I mean, not to mention the, the injuries that resulted in the year. And this is sort of one of the points that I make when having discussions uh, versus 2018 versus 2019. And what the season really meant was we dealt with not only match compression uh, with the new schedule for MLS, more matches because of CCL uh, championis and Open Cup, but also we dealt with a lot of injuries. Obviously, we lost Breck Shea with the ACL tear. We lost mm-hmm. Kitty Jalba for a good bit of time. We lost Mikey Ambrose, you know. Uh, we also lost Brandon Vasquez, which is a striker, which sort of really hurt us in the later end when we were trying to make the playoff run. And then, obviously, there was the there was the, the big one in Escobar, but there was also the one that really hurt us, I feel like, going into the playoffs, which had we had had him and had it not been such a controversial injury as it was, we could be talking about a very different end of 2019, which was Matt Robinson. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think defensively the team was, was good enough in the postseason to keep dancing, even with Miles out of the picture. But that was the biggest change in the team from 18 to 19, is once the team got comfortable with Robinson playing as much as he was and what he brought to the table, they were able to take more chances going forward. And that, that evolution, you saw it really come to the fore when they went to the 3-5-2 after the Breck Shea injury and with the suspension to Franco Escobar for the Houston game at home. When they went 3-5-2 with Miles as part of it, you were able to play it differently. You were able to really go for it and really get numbers forward because Miles Robinson had the greatest range of a center back in MLS this season. He could bail you out of trouble. He could cover for people. You could commit one more guy forward because you knew Miles could fill that space. He's so good and so quick in reading the game and physically just speed to get there that opened up a lot of doors, and that gave you something that you would not have had. You didn't have it in the 3-5-2. Compare the 3-5-2 from the postseason in 18 to the way Atlanta United played it in the second half of 2019. looks very different. Same formation, but it played so different. Miles Robinson's development was a huge part of that. If you had had that card to play in the postseason, weren't bad defensively in the postseason at all. You were actually really, really good but you could have maybe went for it a little bit more, maybe sent one more player forward, maybe opened the attack up even more if you had had Miles to cover you. Absolutely. And then speaking of Miles, I mean, I wanted to do this thing, and this is sort of just the greatest setup, but uh, I wanted to do this thing where we talk about who, as far as players in 2019, really stood out to us. You and me both, and obviously we can have different picks. I'm not sure what your pick is, so I'm sort of waiting for that. But uh, on who had the best season and who really, solidified their role in Atlanta United. For me, and, and keeping with this, was Miles. I mean, let's talk about this. He was the best 11, he was one of the best 11 uh, in MLS, obviously one of the best defenders in MLS as well for 2019. And he really stepped up in a big way. He became an absolute unit and fixture in the Atlanta back line. Uh, and then really, honestly, one of the things I want to point out is the growth that he had from wherein he was under Tati Martina in 2018 to when he was under Frank DeBoer in 2019, and obviously this is something that Frank is known for, which is taking chances on youth and, and letting them sort of have moments and times to shine. But let's talk about it. 2018, he had four appearances in, in that year, and he played 363 minutes. And then let's fast forward to Frank DeBoer. 
He had 33 appearances. He played. He doesn't play one game in the whole season, regular MLS season, and is at almost 3,000 minutes played with two man of the matches performances. I mean, speed, concentration. I mean, I literally looked him up on um, whoscore.com, and when they list out, it's super fun to look at the stuff, but they list out, obviously, the strengths and the weaknesses, and it says there are no major weaknesses to Miles. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a lack of statistical knowledge on him, obviously, because it's the first year that he's really fully played a full season, but when you think about Miles, you do think of him as an absolute union. He's very concentrated. He is very disciplined on the back line, and he's only received four yellows throughout the entirety of 2019, which is absolutely insane to think about. Yeah, he's he's really smart in the tackle. He doesn't put himself in bad positions. That's why he's not picking up a lot of cards. That's something you pick up from playing next to a guy like Michael Parkhurst, who is the same. Parkhurst didn't have the same quickness that, that Robinson did, but that timing is something that they shared. One knock that a lot of people would try to put on, on Robinson was his ability with the ball at his feet, and, and that is gone. That that criticism is gone at this point, and when people bring it up, it's usually national folks now who are not watching him day in and day out. Miles Robinson is completely comfortable with the ball at his feet in a possession-based style. There, there are no worries with that. His progression really started at the end of 2018 when he played week in, week out with Atlanta United 2. And you go back to the end of that 18 season where it was backloaded because of the schedule, because of the availability at Cool Ray Field. And you had, I want to say the last, probably six of the last eight, or maybe even eight of the last ten games at home. And you were doing that kind of you know, weekend, midweek, weekend type of schedule. And Robinson was playing day in, day out with the twos in a variety of roles. At times, playing next to veterans. At times, he was playing as the veteran, you know, with young academy players. And he got that experience and those reps to the point that when he did have to step in, in the postseason in 18, he was completely comfortable. He took that form and found a whole other gear in 2019, and he was absolutely earned best 11. I think he was the defender of the year, although Icapara is a, a very worthy choice. And I think he is a potential star for the national team. And, you know, you have the the very unfortunate incident with the hamstring in national team camp, but Miles Robinson is a player who gives you things that there just aren't really any other center backs in the United States that can play in the way that Miles does. Would you have considered him as your best player for Atlanta United in the five stripes this year? I I don't because of how important Joseph Martinez is, and I think at times we we maybe take Joseph for granted because we've seen this level of, of just consistency and quality over three years, but there aren't many like Joseph, and, and I thought he had his best season in 2019. I, I thought the ability that he showed – to drop into the midfield, get more touches on the ball, be more of a, a linking player at times, um, and broaden his game was key. I, I thought also his leadership was really, really important, and he's not a traditional leader, and you know we've talked about it, who's going to be the next captain of this club with Parkey retiring, and you know Joseph is a leader who maybe doesn't need the armband to do it, you know, he's a, he's a leader by example. He's a leader by just 
him being in the group, and he also is a player who absolutely terrifies the opposition and affects the way that they play against Atlanta United. So I think Joseph and just how important he is, you know, he's the guy. Um, it's not a knock on Miles. It's just Joseph is that important. No, he absolutely is, and that's a, that's a great point that you make, that he really stepped into sort of a different position that he played under Tata Martino and still almost beat himself uh, as his goal-scoring record than he, that he did underneath a sort of more attack-minded structure with under Tata. So that's, that itself is, is noteworthy and, and worth really looking at. And I think a lot of the times with national media, there is such a attention to players like Vela, who obviously did have an incredible year and obviously is last on as well because of just the sheer uh, gore scoring capability that he has. And obviously he was under a structure at LA Galaxy in which it was give him the ball and let him do his work. But I think it does show a lot of range and versatility and also just pure tent consistently in and day in and day out for Joseph to be able to not only take on a new a newer role dropping in and not maybe getting service as much as he was in 2018, but still being able to come up with those moments of brilliance, come up with those goals. He had a stretch, and I I didn't look this up, but how many games was it that he went uh, scoring? 15, was it 15, I think, too. Yeah. Insane, right? I mean, uh, he's now in, in, in a list of people with Lionel Messi and, and the top goal scorers in, in history with soccer. So you have to really give it out to him, and, and I thank you for bringing the pick up. Uh, you're absolutely valid in all of your reasons. Going into looking at the year constructively, who would you say would be the player who maybe didn't give you as much as you were hoping they would give you? I think maybe the the one who surprised me, and, and look, it's bound to happen because he had two great seasons with Atlanta. It's Leandro Gonzalez-Pierres. He was more consistent than, than we're used to seeing for him. And and I, I think my expectations are so high because of how good he was in 17 and 18. He just had some moments this season, a couple games, where it just wasn't clicking in the same way. And that happens, you know. Every every player has these types of years. It's not to say that he had a bad year at all. You, you look back at the entirety of the season, LGP had a very good year. It was the, the weakest of his three in Atlanta, but the reason it was is because of how good he was in 17 and 18. I'm not worried about his form. I'm not worried about any of that. It was just a few different mistakes that happened in big moments that, you know, it, you want to minimize those uh, at times. He, he got help, and Miles Robinson being there kind of changed the role for Leandro Gonzalez-Pierez, and he talked about it early in the year, whereas, you know, he was – more of the, the young guy with Parkhurst, and then he changed roles and became the veteran with Robinson. I think he got better as the year went on. It was kind of in that middle stretch where everything was a little wonky for Atlanta United, that, that Leandro maybe had some of his weaker performances. But he's a player that when, when you have LGP and Robinson at their best, there's not a center-back duo that's better in this league. I absolutely agree with you. And, and in the same vein, that was the one pair that also was a little lackluster for me this year. I mean, we obviously have all come to love OGP. He's a staple for Atlanta United. And I hope, you know, obviously his option has been picked up, but I hope to see him for many more years in the five strikes. But that was one of the things that was a little bit shocking to us. And I think it's just shocking in the sense that we're all 
expecting him to be as consistent as he was the past two years. And every player is going to have a season that's not as great as another season. And, and that always tends to change with, with roles and, and, and people coming in and uh, new coaches, things of that nature. But it was sort of one of those seasons where I expected a little bit more, just like you said. But one of the things that I did think, that sort of was a disadvantage for LGP was the rotating back line through injuries. I mean, you had consistently Miles there, which was great that we didn't really suffer an injury with Miles until later in the season. So we did have a good solid pairing between those two. But when you think about who was on the wing, with the with the rotation of Escobar because of injury, with the rotation of Florentine Pogba, you know, obviously Bello being out, and then having to sort of makeshift that entire back line sort of didn't give LGP the best foundation to stand on. No, it's hard to have consistency. And I mean, even beyond that, go from a the way the team played in the 3-4-3 at the very beginning, which wasn't Frank DeBoer's you know, original idea, but without Franco Escobar, you had to do something different. He went 3-4-3 early, and that's a different way to play than the 4-3-3 that they went to when Escobar got healthy because then LGP is in a center-back duo. But then you go to the 3-5-2 at the end of the season, and it was different than the 3-4-3. You're both in three center backs, but it's different when you then start talking about the different personnel around it because there's a very big difference between Breck Shea as the left wing back, between Mikey Ambrose as the left wing back, and between Justin Merrim as a left wing back. So all of those things made it very difficult for Leandro this season. But you're talking about a guy who started every game um, that he was available for 34 on the year, just under 3,000 minutes, and was good. He just wasn't at the level that we have seen him before. You expect with more consistency, more chemistry, and just that coherent way of playing. And if the team can stay healthy and, and have that that thing to fall back on, I do expect, and it's something that we saw with Frank DeBoer, and I, I do expect it to continue. I do think you'll see this team not be as rigid in, in shape as maybe they were under Tata Martino, where you'd go long stretches of playing the same way. I think over time, you know, and it's, it's what a lot of top clubs are doing, you'd love to see them be able to, against the right opponent, play the 3-5-2, against right opponent, play the 4-3-3, and have the ability to adjust within the match. This season was a bumpy way to get there, but it could help in the long run, and a player like Leandro Gonzalez-Perez will benefit from that flexibility that he had to show this year. Absolutely, and I think that's a good point that you make. That, And this is honestly where I feel like going into this topic of what we should expect for 22, like what's 20 from the horizon, 2020, is this idea that we are going to be seeing probably the most squad rotation we have in a very long time with Atlanta United. Uh, obviously, we let go of uh, Gian Pereira, Florentine Pogba, um, Jose Hernandez, Chris Goslin. I'm sorry, we didn't let go of Pereira. That was my bad. Um, but, uh, you know, Chris Goslin, uh, Ofonco, Ambrose, who obviously went to Miami Vasquez, who went to Cincy, Shea and Kratz. We're going to be seeing a lot of rotation and a lot of new players coming in. Do you see this sort of squad rotation and sort of a new roster build-out as being as Frank's foundation to be able to be fluid in, in formation? Yeah, I think it's the, the modern game, too. I mean, when, when you're going to be a big club and you're going to play in lots of competitions, and, and we know how important 
CONCACAF will, will be to this team. We know how important the Open Cup is under DeBoer, and that's, that's maybe one of the biggest changes that we saw from Tata Martino to Frank DeBoer is the importance that was placed on the U.S. Open Cup. Go back and look at the lineups in, in the Open Cup versus 2017, 2018, and what we saw in 2019. It's pretty much first choice all the way through in, in 2019, and that leads you to a trophy. That leads you to CONCACAF Champions League. Very, very important. So you're going to have all these games. You're going to have all these different competitions. You're seeing more tactical variance in MLS now, let alone when you're playing in CONCACAF or you're playing lower division teams. You have to be able to change it up. And maybe one of the biggest changes in the world of soccer over the last 10, 15 years is a greater focus on the opponent and being able to prepare for the opponent. And that's not always from a negative perspective. I think a lot of people look at that as, you know, you you hear it from from some managers, like, we don't change. We play our way. But being, you know, cognizant of what the opponent presents and what opportunities they present to you is very important. And to have that flexibility for Atlanta United to be able to say, you know, hey, against this team, we would like to have somebody pair up with Joseph Martinez, play two top, and put their back line under pressure because they struggled with that. All right, this next opponent, we want to stretch them out. We want to open the game up. We want to play the flanks. You're going to have a squad so far, it looks like, with probably if maybe a few additions you would expect, that has a lot of flexibility built in. And it's where 2019 was a rocky road at times because you had to change up so much might actually help you in the long run. For the depth and for the, the, the placement of players, absolutely, I agree with you. And one of the players that did come in recently, obviously the signing with Brooks Lennon um, with RSL, the player that we've actually been looking at for a couple of years now and tried to get earlier, but um, this is going to, I know this is a hot-button topic, so we can hit on it really quickly and then keep on, but this idea that because Brooks Lennon will sign, Julian Gressel's contract might, I mean, he's obviously uh, his option was picked up, but resigning the contract is, has now up in, been up in debate. Um, but I think that everything that I read about Lennon, I mean, he's obviously a little bit more defensive than Gressel is, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's coming in to take over Gressel's spot. He could be at a desk where it's needed, or he could also just mean that Gressel's now being pushed more into the midfield. What are, what are your thoughts about Brooks? Brooks Lennon signing and what that could possibly mean for the future of Russell. I think it's a good play to add. And whenever you can add a, a quality young player with room to grow, you do it. And Lennon is a guy, as you said, that the teams looked at before. They, they thought about getting him in the summer window in 2018 to bolster the squad. and They couldn't come to the deal with the Rail Salt Lake. And Lennon's situation in Salt Lake changed. You know, They're a club that's going to continue to try to develop the next generation and Aaron Herrera started getting time at right back and Lennon was kind of the odd man out when the managerial change happened and Freddie Juarez took over, created an opportunity for Atlanta. So the price tag you get him for completely comfortable to add a player of Lennon's caliber. What does it mean long-term? It gives you options. I mean, I don't think you can jump to any conclusions just yet because the, the future and, and long-term of Julian Gressel I really do think is going to be tied to the CBA because you're not talking about any kind of just a, a small raise or, or not changing a status. I'm assuming that a new contract for Gressel would bump him up into that, you know, TAM level type of player. And without knowing what salary caps are going to look like, without knowing what allocation money, you know, usage is going to look like, 
you do have to wait it out a little bit. You, you have the option on, on Gressel that's been picked up, so he's here for 2020. You have Brooks Lennon under contract through at least 2020. You're, you're covered right now. And when the CBA is done, I think that's when we'll know what can happen. But as you mentioned, and I think this is the really important thing, between Escobar, Lennon, and Gressel, you have the right side of the field covered in a four-man back line in a three-center back setup with wingbacks. You've got it covered any which way with wingers because Lennon can play up as a winger with right backs in a line of four because Escobar and Lennon can both play there. With wingbacks, we know Gressel's ability there. Gressel can also play as a winger in a 4-3-3. You have a lot of flexibility. And one thing I pointed out on SDH is I don't think it's something that you're going to see on the regular, but you could see all three play together because of their versatility with Russell tucking inside as one of the central midfielders. Lennon can play as a winger. Escobar could play as a, as a right back. The flexibility and the ability to change shape within a match, Lennon gives you another card to play in that regard. It's very important. I think that's a great point to make, and as you say, definitely goes along with this idea of the modern game changing to where you're having a system and, and players who can can change to versus your opponent. But that that idea of these these players and whoever we have on our team being versatile enough to play multiple a multitude of uh, positions, I think, is important to know. And so when we're looking forward to 2020, are there any players? specifically that you're looking forward to that maybe Atlanta United fans aren't entirely familiar with. Like one of the ones I want to point out, which has been signed to a first team deal is George Campbell. Obviously he's an Academy player, came up, played with the twos. What should we expect out of him this year? And then also George Bellow. We, unfortunately we weren't able to see Bellow this year, but what could this year mean for Bellow in terms of breaking into MLS truly as being that starting left back? I think there's been almost, you know, people forgetting about Bellow and and what he brings to the table. I mean, you know, George Bellow is one of the top young talents of his age in the country. So, you know, the fact that he was injured and had to have surgery and we didn't see him at the end of the season, I think the reason you didn't see him with the first team at the end of the season was by the time he got healthy, Justin Merrim had locked down the wingback role in that 3-5-2 and also, you had George Bellow, who was going to go to the U-17 World Cup, so you were going to lose him in the postseason. Why rush him back in and change up that chemistry that was working at time and you know do that for a play that you're going to miss in the postseason anyway? Bellow played for Atlanta United, too, and played well. And as he got you know healthy and stronger and rebuilt his confidence, played well. Um, the U-17 World Cup team didn't play well as a group, and, and Bellow didn't have a great tournament. I think all of the shakeups with the coaches at the youth national team level did not help that situation at all. But as many have said, Bellow was in- intended to be the starter on the left side this season. Breck Shea was intended to be cover. That changed with the injury. Bellow, for those who haven't seen much of him, he can play as a left back in a four-man back line. He plays as a wing back and be very successful there. He gets forward very well. He can score goals, as we saw at the first-team level in 2018. He can create for others, but he can also defend. And that's the area of his game that's going to continue to grow as he gains more confidence. Campbell was a huge surprise in 2019. He was a player that started the season as an academy player 
getting minutes in USL Championship on Academy contract and parlayed that into a homegrown deal by the end of the year. He was not the guy that was expected to be the next homegrown signing, I don't think. Uh, he was one who has been a little bit of a late bloomer, a guy who, for one, I think has kind of grown into his body over the last year, 18 months. Uh, great size, great speed, quickness, strength. And on the field, you could just see this growth game after game with Atlanta United 2 in Campbell's confidence. And he reminds me a lot of Miles Robinson at the very beginning. He, he has to get better on the ball. He has to continue to make quicker decisions with the ball, and that's probably the number one thing. But physically, he can defend against anybody. He can run with anybody. He can also deal with a physical forward who wants to back into you and throws weight around a little bit. Campbell's a guy who, you know, you'd love to not have to force him into first-team action straight away. I think he's probably far more capable of it than we would have guessed at the beginning of 2019. But in a perfect world, in the first half of 2020, you're able to get him the right kind of minutes with the first team if, if they're there, if you don't add more depth at center back, which is one spot I'm extended to see some depth added. But get him a lot of minutes in matches with Atlanta United too, but training with the first team group and getting better at that level. This is a good point that you say with, with depth at center back. I mean, obviously, with any position that we have on the field right now, we're going to need to see a little bit more depth added because we did have a good change of roster coming into, obviously, this offseason in 2019, going into 2020. But one of the things that's most important is just all of the matches that we foresee ahead. Obviously, with the CCL draw that just happened, Last night, because we're recording this now on Tuesday with us now ha uh, having to face the Honduras team, we're going into what's going to be a very hard run. With sort of funny how every time we these CCL uh, draws happen, we end up getting sort of the toughest road, um, which makes me a little happier that also LFC is facing a pretty tough road going into it as well. But um, for death purposes and obviously going into this CCL, how do we, as in Atlanta United in the front office and obviously the coaching staff, take full advantage of the time that they have right now to get as many players as possible to sort of start focusing on depth and start focusing on uh, forcing all the games you're going to have to play, including, you know, the CCL run and obviously later in the year when you have Open Cups and not to mention the the Olympics that are happening this year, which we're possibly going to lose players to, like Ezekiel Barco. Yeah, I mean, let's take it kind of half of the season at a time because you do have a window in the summer that, that you could get some business done in if you need to. The upcoming transfer window, it's an awkward time because of the CBA, and that's going to have an effect. I think it's easy to, right now, replace guys in terms of plots in, in your roster and, and on your existing cap and basing it off of the cap from last year. That's an easy move to make. It's hard to plan to expand it very much without knowing what it's going to be. So that's going to have an impact. Um, I think you can make the additions that you need to make, though, and be active in the market as needed. Center back depth is one. You know, you look at the depth chart, and you don't really have much beyond Campbell, although the re-signing of Jeff Lorenowitz gives you an extra player who can play in the back as needed. Getting Emerson Hindman on a permanent deal 
helps you in the midfield. You have a strong group that you can go into the season with, but there's a couple areas where you'd like to add just a little bit more, you know, an, an extra forward just in case, you know, maybe a different kind of forward, a bigger body, because you've lost Brandon Vasquez, you traded Romario Williams last season. You know, do you want to look for any other starters? Maybe a number six, a defensive midfielder, is one of those positions that you could look to upgrade and get somebody that can grow into that role over some time. You don't have to make a, a, a panic move. And that's where I think Atlanta United has to be commended. You're not in a position right now to look at this and say, we have to have a player or we're in trouble in, in CONCACAF or we're in trouble in the first part of the season. You've got a, a great core coming back, but you can always get better. And that's what I'm expecting them to be looking at now is, are there any moves that can make them better as an overall unit or individually in the team right now? I, I do think you'll see some more additions in, in this window, and I think you might see you know, a, a big one if the CBA gets done in time. And, Things expand as as people. As I think we're all expecting to see a bigger salary cap well, and see some changes in things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it'll be bigger, but how much bigger is the question? So, how much are you going to have to work with, and what's that going to look like? You also have young players who I think are going to you know earn more time and be in different roles than they were in 2019. Campbell's one, Bellows one. Uh, Dion Pereira is one. Mo Adams, now you're going to have him the whole way through. I think he earned the respect and trust of Frank DeBoer as the year went on. Luis Fernando is going to be a first-team player now. He's going to be you know, competing for time. And you have two guys who are homegrowns that are, are still here in Lagos Kunga and Andrew Carlton. Carlton's option was picked up. Kunga was under contract and loaned out to Memphis last year and played well loaned away. Those guys are going to push for time, and this is, you know, make or break years for some players who they're going to give you everything they have to stick around and to earn more time and, and improve their standing in the team. So it creates a really interesting dynamic for the group as a whole. Absolutely, and I know I don't have much more time with you, so I want to sort of get to this point, which has sort of been a fun topic to have, but... Uh, the opening match for Atlanta United this season is obviously on a leap year day. It's February 29th at 8 p.m. in Nashville um, at the stadium where the Titans also play. There's been this whole talk, and unfortunately, you know, as, as everybody knows at this point, uh, Nashville was drawn in the West and not obviously in the East like we would like them to be. But when they do move back to the East, which we all expect to happen, do they become Atlanta's new rival? I mean, we'll always still, obviously still have the – the stain and the the vitriol that we've always had with Orlando, but do does Nashville become this other real threat, real rival to us going forward? I don't know why there's been this idea that you can only have one rival. You know, maybe it's me coming from a, a college football perspective and and growing up as a Georgia fan and going to UGA, where it feels like every other game for Georgia is a rivalry game. I think Atlanta United's going to be like that. I mean, Nashville's existence doesn't take away from the rivalry with Orlando. And, and I use the rivalry word with Orlando, and, and I, some people get really bent out of shape about that. I don't know why. It's good. Like, to have a rivalry, to have a game that feels a little bit bigger, a little bit more, maybe there's anger, maybe there's just the ability for fans to travel like it's good to have those games. You want those games, and you don't have to limit it to just one team. I think for Atlanta United right now, the games that kind of 
grab your attention. And, and the games that, you know, when the full schedule comes out, you're going to be looking for. It's hard to have a rival in the other conference. I think it's harder now to have a rival in the other conference because you might not see everybody. Uh, Orlando, obviously, you want to see when those games are because people will go and you know that, you know, when, when we're down there for a game, there's animosity. Here, you know, you want to keep the winning streak going. You, you know that game's important. Red Bulls. You know that game's important, and that's one that's developed on the field. I think New York City is a rival, and it's one that doesn't get put into this conversation enough because it's a big game. It's an important game. Nashville will be on that list, and the biggest reason initially is just because you're going to see a lot of fans in red and black in that building on February 29th, and that kickstarts things. Absolutely. And I think to add to your point, I mean, there are other teams we can mention, the honorable mentions for this rivalry debate, but Toronto for me is one of them. I I still can't stand Toronto. I never have been able to stand Toronto. I mean, Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Toronto being on that list. I, I, whenever we play them, I never want it to end up in a tie, and we're never allowed to lose, in my mind. <laughs> Um, and, and then the other debate, and I'm, that's not a debate, but LAFC, I think it's forever going to be a rival for us because we're always pitted against each other as these two big clubs in MLS. And, I mean, there are other teams that are obviously up there, but it feels like on a national basis that's what has been pushed forward is this sort of contention of LAFC versus Atlanta United. So those feel a little different to me, those cross-country ones like that. I mean, you look at all sports and you get you know, New York, Los Angeles. It's a big deal. It's important. But it, it's, it doesn't feel like a rivalry to me. Like, for me, rivalry, there's an edge, a little more, you know, of an animosity to it, whereas, like, LAFC to me feels like a measuring stick kind of game because you're always going to compare them. It's a big game. It's, it's not as antagonistic to me. That's the, I don't know. That's, it's a very minor difference, but that's, that's how it feels to me. And, and rivalry for me is so much about feeling. You know, I, I think it's hard to define. And, and that's why, like, I think people get too worried about it. Like, if you don't think it's a rival, that's cool. It's not a rival to you. It's all good. I mean... You know, if if you're a, a Georgia fan, for example, I think most college football teams go through this. You've got different games that are maybe more meaningful to you than other fans. You know, like Georgia Tech and Georgia, it hasn't been competitive lately. Still not a, it's still a rivalry. Like it, it's still a big deal. It is historically, whereas Georgia and Florida is a big deal to different people, and a Georgia and Auburn's a big deal to different people. I think Atlanta United's got that. You know, some people just, like like you, you can't stand Toronto. Toronto's the big one for you. Red Bulls is a big one for, I think, everybody at the moment. Orlando is a big deal for a lot of people. Um, others would say D.C. You know, others would throw in Miami already straight out of the gates because of the comparisons that are going to start. So I think rivalry is about feeling, and it's hard to define feeling. I get that. All right, last question before I let you go. Um, how good do we think Miami is actually going to be this year? Good, maybe not as good as we thought straight out of the gate. A lot of it depends on who they build around on the field day one. And right now, it's it's in flux. You know, you don't have the manager in place. You 
we're going from talking about Luis Suarez and guys of that ilk to Roger Martinez of Club America. It was a very good signing, but it's a different level of signing. I think their big signing is going to come in the summer. I think they're going to keep a designated player spot open and be ready to add somebody in the summer, or they're going to announce a move that somebody's coming in the summer. So out of the gates, I think they'll struggle a little bit, but I think they will be a very compelling watch. And by the end of the year, they will be in that kind of level that Atlanta was in year one, that LAFC was in year one, that potentially, you know, four or five spot in the conference and have the opportunity to go to the postseason. But they got to get the manager in place now, and that's the biggest question because it's a good group so far. It's a young group, but there's still a lot of question marks over Inter-Miami. Yeah. All right. What, Jason, what do you got coming up? Uh, all kinds of stuff on soccer down here, as always. Um, at soccer down here, uh, we have our scarves available. We have our Teespring store for you at teespring.com slash soccer dash down dash here. Uh, all kinds of shirts and mugs and sh- for you to uh, purchase and support the show. And hopefully we're going to keep adding more elements to it. We've been doing a lot of 1v1s with some of the grassroots clubs all over the southeast and honestly all over the country. That's going to continue. We're going to talk more about the youth game and all the different elements of it, whether it's coaching education, referee development, all the things that go into it. So all the talk in the soccer world will be on SDH. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me, Jason. I can't thank you enough for being just as knowledgeable and intuitive as you are. No, thanks for having me. for listening in on this week's episode of Kelly Francis Interviews People. And yes, that is my working title. If you guys have other suggestions on a title, please let me know. I still haven't found one that clicks just yet. However, what I'd love to know more is what you thought of the episode, and you can let me know on social media at the Kelly Francis on either Twitter or Instagram, or you can email me at kfinterviews at gmail.com. That's K as in Kelly, F as in Francis, interviews at gmail.com. In the upcoming days, we get closer to the holidays. So to follow the holiday spirit when families get back together, I decided to bring a little chaos to the forefront. Join me next week in welcoming Nicole Hack, chair of Section 8 in Chicago, an independent supporters association for the club as we discuss the actual fire going on at Chicago Fire while having a one-drink minimum rule in place. It's going to be good fun. Talk with you all next time. Cheers, friends.